You guys are a hard act, I have to say. You know, the morning, they're responsive, they're engaged. You guys, you know, six o'clock, you're sort of kicking back. So I'm not above bribery. So I've come armed and dangerous. Um, and um, we're going to see if I can uh, work some questions. And if there's responses, well, you can be uh, grand recipients of the limited edition vanilla Mars bar. I don't know if it's any good. It's pretty cheap, but uh, we'll see. Um, yeah, anyway. Okay, uh, great to have you all. For those who don't know me, uh, my name's Cameron. I'm trying to balance everything I've got on uh, a small lectern. If it all collapses, well, that's history. Um, great to see you, some of you visiting. Uh, I'm also new, so I know what it feels like to walk into a place where you don't really know anyone. Uh, so uh, please, come and talk to me if afterwards you're looking for someone to talk to, because you'll make me feel much, so much better. So that's good. We've been looking at a series uh, in Luke's Gospel, and um, I've been reminding you guys, and, and this is the first question, that the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel, Luke's story, Luke's account of Jesus' life and ministry, is all about explaining one question. Does anyone know what that question is? Come on, there's chocolate on the line. Who Jesus is? Alicia, you know, front row girl. Yeah, okay. Okay, and Peter's answers in 9 verse 20. Does anyone remember? The Apostle Peter, normally notorious for getting things totally wrong, nails it. He tells us who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Hands up next time. Come on. Okay. He says, you are God's Christ or Messiah or the king of God's kingdom that is to come. And so we've been looking at that. And then there's another question that dominates the second chunk of Luke's gospel from chapters, the end of chapter nine, start of chapter 10 through to chapter 19. Does anyone remember what that question is? Sorry? Sorry, I, I'm just not catching that. Who is your name? That's, today, that's tonight's, but there's a bigger question. There's a bigger question, yeah? What does it mean to follow Jesus? The front row is scoring. Can I just say, Mark is the one that has dropped the ball for the front row. Okay. You were spot on, Anna. You were, but that's tonight, and we're going to, yeah, but... If Jesus is God's king, if Jesus is God's king, what does it actually look like to live a life following him? Because remember, one of Jesus' things that he says to people all the time is come and follow. And he asks people, he calls people, not just to be with him, but to actually give them, uh, give him their trust, their allegiance, their loyalty. Uh, their faith is another word that we use for that. Okay. And so last week we saw... That Jesus' disciples were people with? Okay. No one was listening to your intro either, Mark. You, could, you should be able to tell us this. People with a mission. Very good. <laughs> Front rows scoring big time. And tonight we're actually looking. See, there we, there we have the, the, the question of, uh, of who Jesus is. These are disciples on a mission. They're on a mission from God. And uh, tonight uh, we're looking at... Yes, the question, who is my neighbor? But also the bigger question of what does it actually mean to be a disciple who actually loves their neighbor? Now, 
you guys know, if you've been around here for as long as I have, I love alliteration. I was really happy this week. I came up with four Qs for you. So not mundane Ps or Gs or Ms. I got Qs. That's worth 10 in Scrabble. So uh, that's probably one for me, I reckon. No. (laughs) So we're going to unpack what it actually means to love our neighbours in terms of these four Qs. The query, the quest, the quiz and the quandary. Yes, and I had to look up some of those too. So let's dive in with the query. See, Jesus Jesus is there and uh, he used to attract all sorts of people. And one of the groups of people he used to attract were the other religious teachers of the day. Now, have anyone, anyone maybe at uni, some of us maybe at work, you've been giving a presentation and someone asks a question and you know full well that they know the answer. Yes, you've had that experience. That's what happens with Jesus. This guy, this guy stands up and he asks Jesus a question. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to live the life of the kingdom? Now, this guy's a teacher of the law. So you think, question like that, it's kind of like you standing up and asking me, I should know that question. And he does know the answer to that question. But he's trying to test Jesus and see which side of the argument Jesus is going to come down on. Now, Jesus here isn't being asked, how do I get saved? How do I get to heaven by all the good stuff I do? The teacher of the law is smart enough to know that's not what he's being asked. Jesus is being asked what James picks up. James, who wrote one of the later books in the New Testament, James 2.18 says, some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, James writes, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. So the the teacher of the law is actually saying, what are the deeds, what's the life look like for people who are part of the kingdom of God? The language he used kind of sounds a little bit like, how do I earn it? But he's not actually saying that because Jesus would have hammered that one pretty hard. He's actually saying, what does it look like to live life in your kingdom that will end in eternal life that will end with all the blessings of the kingdom what does that life look like now what's the best way to answer a question this is a question i'm asking what's the best way to ask a answer a question with a question very good lucky jesus was master you see it all the time someone asks him a question he says okay what do you what do you reckon what do you reckon and The guy falls into Jesus' trap. He gives the answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And if you want to be true to the original, drop the and and the love out of this. And it just goes with all your soul, strength, mind and your neighbor as yourself. There's one command here. It's the command to love. It's a command to love God and your neighbor. It's not love God and a separate command, love your neighbor. It's love God and your neighbor. One command that the teacher of the law identifies at the, the heart of the life of the kingdom. And Jesus gives him the thumbs up. Jesus commends him. Jesus approves of his answers. You've nailed it. This is the heart of the life of the kingdom. So we need to work hard. If Jesus is actually saying, this is the right answer, we want to know what the answer means. Yes? So let's dig in. 
what he's saying, what he's saying is our relationship with God must essentially be one of love. And that love in the vertical, if you want to put our relationship with God here, it overflows in the horizontal. You can't have one without the other. That's what he's saying. You've got to have both. Now, when you think of love, what do you think of? Because I think our society, when they think of love, they think quite differently to what Jesus' peers would have heard. So, what are the kind of things that you think of? Go out, watch a movie, read a book, love comes up. What are you thinking or how do you use the word love? Throw out ideas. Come on, see if there's there anybody out there. Anyone? Feelings, such as? Yep, well done, Alex. That's, that's really good. Enjoy. Tell me how you enjoy that. Do you love chocolate? That's good. Love it. Okay, it's another way. I love chocolate. Love the Lord your God. I love chocolate. Does that work for you? How else do we use love? Still got some here. Sorry, Jack? We show love, but how, does our, how, do, how do we use love as an idea? Like I think you're spot on. You get one for trying. Come on. But, but, but how does our society talk about love? Do we have a choice with love? Think of the language we use. We fall in love. It's kind of like there was a guy um, at Colin's place for the welcome lunch today. And he tripped over in the playground and broke his arm. It's kind of like that. I, I fell in love. Um, I broke, fell and broke my arm. It's something that kind of happens to you. You're a bit of a victim of it. So how does Jesus command us to love? Something that we kind of see as something that we don't have a lot of control over. All of a sudden, Jesus is saying, this, this is the key command. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 18, they're the two passages he's drawing on. And he says, this is the heart of the life of the kingdom. And we go, well, how, how can we do that? Love's a, an emotion that we have no control over. It kind of just happens to us. Well, Jesus had a different view, a different view of love. And in the Bible and in Jesus' time, love was a much bigger concept. It's a much bigger concept. It's a love... And, and, and it really, it captures all that emotional side, but with a, if you love something with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, it's something that has captured your life. If you think of your life having a throne, the thing that you love sits upon that throne. Let me give you an illustration. Thomas Cramner, does not Okay, I want to see if there are any Anglicans out here, because officially Trinity Bay is an Anglican church. Um, we may not look like one, we may not sometimes act like one, but we are Anglican. So who's Thomas Cramner? Anyone? An Englishman. You've got to do better than an Englishman. Okay, any advances on an Englishman? He had a very particular role. Anyone? He was a bishop. Any, can we go up on bishop? Archbishop, Archbishop of Canterbury, give me a rough time frame. Protestant, Protestant come on, give me years, come on. Are we talking 1200s, 1800s? 
16th century. No, you're about a century off, but that'll do. Mid-1500s, Henry VIII, that kind of thing. Thomas Cramner was the first Protestant evangelical Archbishop of Canterbury. So we should, we should love this guy. He should be just there. And he came up with this thing that I thought, this is gold. He talks about how the heart works in our life and what it means to love. He tells us what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So work with me, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Okay, chocolate. What the heart loves. I love chocolate. I love chocolate. It's amazing that I've given you any of these, actually. (laughs) Chocolate is good. Last night I was over at uh, some... yeah, no, Friday night, over a friend's house. There's a plate, there's fruit, there's cheese, there's chocolate. Chocolate is all I'm interested in. Okay, the, what the heart loves, the will chooses. There was fruit there. I knew the fruit was good. I loved the chocolate. I took the chocolate. The cheese looked nice, but the chocolate wins every time. The will chooses, and then the mind justifies. So I come up with every reason why the peach stayed on the plate and the chocolate was in the mouth, okay? I'd had a tough week. And, you know, I hadn't pigged out on chocolate for a while. And so I'd kind of been saving up chocolate credits. You, do you guys do that? Save up chocolate credits. And eventually you've earned enough that the whole block is probably enough to cancel all the credits. But still, but still you don't feel that guilty because what the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. What Cramden is identifying is the thing that is on the throne of your heart drives everything. And so, if life is all about work for you, you want the status or you want the money, you want the feeling of success that comes with work, what the heart desires, the will chooses. So the boss says, over time, you go, certainly. Not going to pay you, doesn't matter any chance to get ahead you do the hard yards you make the thing you make it and then you come up with all the reasons that why you're doing that makes perfect sense so i'm doing it to you know save up for that mortgage on the house you know we need the deposit we need to put that aside or i need to get ahead or you know i'm making a difference and you're explaining to yourself why you've made the choices you don't approach it just purely from a rational thing it's what you crave what you want in your heart And Jesus here is actually saying, if you are a disciple, the life of the kingdom, it's what God wants. It's having God at the center that is absolutely critical. Does that make sense? Well, fine. This is important. This is important because I think uh, we lose some of this because this is a really important question. So let's move on. Let's go to number two, our quest. Jesus just told us, he's told us that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and our neighbours as ourselves. And now we have the guy's response. Verse 29, literally, the one who was wishing to declare himself righteous. He asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? Okay, I want you to think, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes because you've been listening to me for a bit and I've been doing a lot of talking all day uh, and you guys haven't been. So I want you to actually, why 
why is it important for this guy to ask this question and how does it relate to him justifying himself? You understand the question? So what, why does Jesus, uh, why does the teacher of the law ask Jesus, who is my neighbour? And how does it relate to his desire to declare himself righteous or to justify himself? Talk amongst yourselves, ponder it. If you don't want to talk to the person next to you, ponder it. Make sure you stay on topic. Don't talk about anything else. You've got about two minutes. Okay, now um, great minds have been pondering these questions for centuries. I'm sure you've plumbed it in the last two minutes. What's the guy trying to do? What is he trying to do as he's asking Jesus, who is my neighbour? Anyone? There's four chocolates here. This is probably worth two, I reckon, if you get this. You can share one with a person next to you. Anyone? Fry? Yep. He wants to draw a boundary. Yes, I'll, I'll give you that. Okay, that's, that's, that's for the first one, Graham. Okay, the guy, this is like, this is like the, um, you guys probably not, most, men, most of you have probably not signed insurance policies, but you know when you get the insurance policy and there's little asterisks and they look down at the bottom and you realise all the things that just aren't covered? This guy's trying to add an asterisk to the love your neighbour. He's trying to draw a boundary around it to find out how big that neighbour actually is. Now, the question is, and someone other than Graham can answer this, why is he doing it? What's he trying to do? <laughs> to use my... And why does he want to control how much liability... I think you're on the, exactly the right answer, exactly the right direction. Why does he want to do that? Or he can stand before God and say, I am righteous. I've done... Oh, that, that's very good. Thank you. There you go. Enjoy that. He's doing what I think all of us do. He's doing it in a religious way, can I say. This guy, he's given Jesus the right answer. The right answer, which is, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbour as yourself. Or love God and neighbour. Same thing. Okay. But... That's all about grace. It's all about a motivation that comes out of love for who God is and what he's done. But now this guy is actually showing us that he works by law. 
He wants to know, what does that look like? For those of us who have special others, have you ever sat down, like I've been married almost now for a quarter of a century, um, I, I have to say that it would not bode well with my wife if I was to sit down and say, what is necessary for me to do in order for me to fulfill righteousness with respect to loving you? Okay, what boxes do I need to tick to be a good husband? Okay, tell me the 10 things I need to do. Can I say that there's value in working out, you know, what they like and what they don't like, can I actually say? The boyfriends, the girlfriends, the husbands, the wives. Um, but it's not a good way to work your relationship, is it? Probably doesn't get you very far. Wouldn't work with friends most of the time either. Okay, so this guy, he is trying to run his relationship with God by rules, by limits. How much do I have to give? Who is my neighbour? Who do I have to love? And this is something that I think all of us do. We have a quest. Now, we may not do it in a religious way, but we all want to be righteous. You may not have thought about that. You may not be a Christian here tonight. You may be thinking, what's this guy talking about? Work with me here. Okay, you all want to answer the question, I'm a good person because... Not many of us want to live a life that is a bit of a waste of time. My life is worth living because. Okay, this guy would say, I'm a good person because I keep the law of God. That's what he's striving to do. But as Phil's identified for us, he's trying to limit his indemnity. <laughs> he's trying to work out how closely he can hedge that so it's easier for him to do it. Okay? But all of us do it, whether we do it with God and in religious terms or whether we do it with other things. Let me give you a quote from Tim Keller here. He says, the human heart takes good things like successful career, material possessions, love, even family, turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives. That means we make them into God's because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. So what do we answer? I'm a good person. I have significance. I have meaning. My life is a good life because. And if your answer is anything other than the grace of God towards you in Jesus Christ, what you've probably identified is your idol. Okay, let me give you an illustration just to flesh this one out because I think, again, it's a big thing. I'm a good person. My life has significance because I'm a good dad. Okay, I know Hannah. Hannah's smiling. Uh, she's wishing I didn't draw attention to that fact, but I am a good father, you see? And I have an image in my head of exactly how that looks and that, that functions as law. I'm a good father because I provide what is necessary for my family. I give them food on the table. I provide opportunity for them to pursue education and other opportunities. We go on holidays, and I think they're cool holidays. You can ask the kids whether they are or aren't. I have this image, and I can tick those boxes, and I can say, as far as my standing as a good father, I can tick the boxes. I am righteous. And if my heart is set on being a good dad, and that's what I'm building myself on, I'm feeling pretty good about myself, aren't I? My idol, being a good dad, it has its law, listed them out for you, could add some more, 
And we either fulfill righteousness or we fail. And every idol works with law. And this guy, this guy at the heart of the Jewish faith, reveals that he relates to God like an idol. You could make up your own. I don't know what you'd have. You belong to the right family, you've got into the right uni course, you get the right grades, you go out with the right person, you live in the right suburb, you're the right colour, you're the right height, you're the right gender, whatever that means these days, I'm not quite sure. You can fill out that and you will have a series of laws that go with that. And the idea, like Phil has identified for us, is to make those laws as manageable as you possibly can so you can say, I'm a good person. And this is what this guy's doing. And Jesus will not let it stand. So he, he gives a quiz. Actually, before I do that, I've just moved on and my notes are being covered by my iPad. Think about it. Just go back to my illustration about being a good dad. If I'm building my own sense of self and worth and identity on being a good dad, is it about the kids or is it about me? Not rhetorical. I'm using them, aren't I? I am using them. If this guy is building his sense of righteousness, his sense of I am a worthwhile person on the fact that he's helping the neighbour, whoever the neighbour might be, it's actually not about their need, is it? It's about him fulfilling his purposes. And so he's actually using the poverty or the crisis of the people in need to meet his own need. You see how bizarrely selfish that actually is? And Jesus challenges that. He tells, gives us a quiz. He tells us a very familiar story about a guy travelling down from Jericho. Now this is 18 miles of road that looks pretty much like this. This is actually the old Roman road uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. It passes down through ravines, riddled with caves, great place for, um, for robbers uh, to hang out. And these, uh, these robbers had grabbed this guy, beaten him up, left him half dead. You most likely know the story. The priest, the religious guru, passes by on the other side of the road. The Levite, the one who had been set aside amongst the 12 tribes of Israel, the one tribe that was set aside for God's purposes, particularly, passed by on the other side of the road. Their actions reveal what's happening in their heart. You notice that Jesus doesn't make any excuses for them, doesn't tell us why. You read some of the commentaries and they'll say things like, maybe the priest He's going up for his service in the temple and he needs to remain ceremoniously clean. Any ideas why Jesus doesn't give us any of those reasons? Just tells them as he passed by. Doesn't matter. You want one of these? Yeah, you can have it. The implication is, whatever reason it was, wasn't a good enough reason to leave the guy lying in the gutter. It wasn't good enough. And then someone else comes along. And this guy... This guy's a Samaritan. Now, we're so familiar with the story, most likely, and even culturally, we probably don't really get it. This is kind of like, um, this morning, have we got any South Africans here this, this evening? This morning, there's like, half the church is South African, I think. Um, it's like, it's like 
a member of the apartheid government has been beaten up and left in the gutter and a card-carrying member of the ANC, the African National Congress, who had been fighting apartheid, is the, is the guy walking down the road, the Samaritan. It's stark opposites. It's like the American GI is in the gutter and the ISIS fighter is walking down the road. For the Samaritan to be used was just, it was stark. This is in your face. And this guy, this guy does everything that the other ones should. Six acts of practical love. He delays his journey. He cares for the wounds. He provides transport. He brings the guy to shelter. He covers their costs and ensures his ongoing care. He steps over every boundary of race. The Jews and the Samaritans hated their guts. The Jews from the north would travel around Samaria, an extra three days travel to just avoid going through Samaria. And sometimes the Samaritans would murder the Jewish travelers for their troubles. They hated each other's guts. He stepped over the barriers of religion. The Samaritans were half-Jews. They had the first five books of the Old Testament, but that's all they acknowledged. They had their own temple on another mountain, and the Jews 150 years earlier had gone in and burnt it and trashed the whole place. So there's issues of historical injustice, there's issues of race and religion, and this Samaritan in his love, crosses every boundary. Jesus gives us an illustration that blows those categories wide open. The teacher of the law is trying to narrow things down. Jesus broadens them up beyond their comprehension and probably beyond ours. This puts us in a quandary, my last cue. Okay, we're getting there. We're getting there. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Some people point out the fact that he couldn't even say the Samaritan. That was the easy way to answer that question. He gives a very long way of actually not using that word. But the issue isn't that. The issue is Jesus's command to go and do likewise because we've already said we can actually do all these things for all the wrong reasons so is Jesus telling us that we have to go and help our neighbors whoever they are wherever we come across them is he giving us another another law another law that we can either fulfill and feel proud or fail and feel crushed. This is the quandary we find ourselves in. Does Jesus give us another way? Can I suggest that he does, which is good, because otherwise we'd be totally up the creek, okay? We need to find a way that we can actually love like the Samaritan loved, crossing the boundaries of race, of preference, of anything that makes us uncomfortable, anything that would make us go, you know, it's easy to love people who are like us. It's easy to help out friends and family. But you know, there are always those people that you think, why, why would I help? I don't want to help them. I don't want to help them. How do we love like this guy loves? 
How do we not use people to build our own sense of, I'm such a wonderful person because look at the stuff I do. How do we do that? Well, we need to recognise that if we're in this parable anywhere, we're not the Samaritans. Who are we? Last chocolate. Who are we in the parable? The injured guy? We're the guy in the gutter. That is where we are. And we need to see our desperate need. Our desperate need because we have realised that our righteousness, our attempts to build up our standing before God, to convince ourselves and others that we are, we've got it all together, we're righteous, we are just, it doesn't stack up. And Jesus... Jesus is the Samaritan. Jesus is the one who crosses the boundaries, not of race, but of sin. Who crosses not a road, but from eternity into creation. Jesus is the one who pays for our care, not with two silver coins, but with the blood that he shed. Jesus is the one who meets our deepest need. And when we see that, when we see that we were that guy in the gutter, we had that desperate need and Christ met it so freely, without quibbling, without saying, but they've rejected us, Father, Son and Spirit, from creation. Humanity are rebels. Why would I die for them? Jesus doesn't say that. In the same way as the Samaritan didn't say, but this is a Jew and they destroyed our temple. This is a Jew and they hate our race. Jesus doesn't say to the father, do I have to die for this person? He comes and freely lays down his life. He gives us a righteousness that we don't have to work for. We all have that desire to say, I have value. And Jesus gives us the answer that cannot be touched because it doesn't depend upon our achievement. It depends on his. So we can say, I have value. I have meaning. I have significance because Christ died for me, because I am an adopted child of God. And when we understand that, we are not only saved by the gospel of grace, but the gospel of grace continues to work in us and empowers us. The gospel helps us to see not their history, but their need. It helps us to help in a way that doesn't build our sense of righteousness because we don't need to. And it frees us. It frees us to love. It is as the Spirit takes the work of Christ in the gospel and applies it in our hearts that we find the strength to love as Christ loves. We can love not because we have to, not because there's a command, but because we can. Because we love the Father. Because as in 1 John 4 it says, He loved us first. He has given us this much. He has shown himself so lovely 
that our love is a response. And from that, not only do we love Him, but like the Samaritan and like Jesus, we can love our neighbour. I'm going to stop. I'd love to keep on going. It's a great topic, but I realise I'm probably stretching the friendship already. But I'm going to be hanging around afterwards. Love to keep talking about it. Thank you for eating my chocolates, but let's pray. Father, we just, we're amazed at the love that you showed for us in Christ. You sent him to us. He crossed the road of eternity. He came from heaven into creation. Not just to pick us up, but to clothe us in his righteousness, in his robe of his achievement, to give us his status as sons and heirs, to give us a righteousness that the world cannot touch. Father, we ask that by your spirit you'd be so at work in us that that truth would not be something like the teacher of the law that just sits in our heads, but that we would know it in our hearts. And that what our hearts love is you, and what our wills choose is you. And what our mind justifies, that there be no reason to justify anything because it is you that justify. Lord, let us love you and so love our neighbour. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.